I was a sophomore at UF when 9-11 happened. Three years later, I was a missionary with crew in Europe when the war in Iraq was kicking off and the Bush versus Kerry election cycle was in constant global news. Students at our Italian university desperately wanted to talk about. They would constantly ask us, Bush or Kerry? It was a very simple question that I thought had a really simple answer to it. So that whole fall, I would always answer the question, Bush. It took me a long time to realize how my approach to answering this common question unknowingly and dramatically undermined my gospel ministry on campus. Let me hit pause on that story, and we'll circle back around to it. This is the third week in our sermon series, Preaching Through Our Core Values. And today, I'm preaching on Acts 17 as it pertains to our core value of contextualizing our mission. Our big idea this morning is this. If we want to be more fruitful as a local church, we need to learn our city, relate better, and tell a better story. Let me say that again. If we want to be more fruitful as a local church, we need to learn our city, relate better, and tell a better story. So we'll look at those three points, starting with learn our city in verse 16, and then we'll look at relating better in verses 17 through 21, and we'll look at telling a better story in verses 22 to 34. I'm going to read part of our scripture text, but I'm going to do a little bit different this week. I'll be reading the sermon passage kind of interspersed throughout so that the actual text is fresh and you can remain seated for this. So, starting in Acts 17, starting in verse 16, let me read the text. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So we find Paul alone in Athens, the most important intellectual city in Greece. It was also a commercial hub with an important port. While Paul was walking around, he would have observed a stadium, a large theater, a massive lecture hall, numerous pagan temples, the Parthenon, numerous statues to Greco-Roman rulers and or various other gods. Paul is technically waiting for Silas and Timothy to arrive, but he doesn't waste any time to seize some key ministry opportunity. He walks around and observes the city. This was his habit. A new city meant a new mixture of wants and fears. A new city meant new dynamics of culture, language, idols, rituals, symbols. A new city meant new history, art, literature, poetry, food, music, and architecture. Paul was deeply, deeply bothered in his person by what he observed the Athenians worshiping, and this drove him to learn their city and seek to communicate the Gospels to it in ways that would be comprehensible to the Athenians. Tim Keller defines contextualization as this, translating and adapting the communication and ministry of the Gospel to a particular culture without compromising the essence and particulars of the gospel itself. Let me say that again. Contextualization is this. Translating and adapting the communication and ministry of the gospel to a particular culture without compromising the essence and particulars of the gospel itself. Another writer, Mike Cosper, adds this. Contextualization 
makes the offense of the gospel comprehensible. Contextualization makes the offense of the gospel comprehensible. To illustrate this, I want to tell you about a 20th century British missionary and pastor with a funny name, Leslie Newbegin. From age 27 to age 65, he and his wife were missionaries in southern India. In 1974, he returned to the UK after nearly 40 years away to find a very different and decidedly post-Christian country. What were barely noticeable incremental cultural and philosophical shifts over a long period of time to those living in the UK, for Newbegin were very noticeable and very clear after 40 years away. He was one of the first people in the Western world to really see the wave of post-Christendom that was washing over Western Europe. He began advocating for serious Christians to see themselves as cross-cultural missionaries inside their own culture. His thesis was that even though you and your neighbor might hold similar jobs, be of the same ethnicity, belong to the same socioeconomic class, pull for the same football club, and speak the same language, that fundamentally you are actually part of a different culture and you need to acquire the skills of cross-cultural missionaries in order to dissect, study, interact, understand, and comprehend a new culture. Newbegin was saying this 45 years ago, and it's ringing ever more true every day. Just because we speak the same language as somebody else, and we have other things in common, doesn't mean that when we speak, we're actually communicating. In the same line of thinking, there's a parable that I've shared here before, but I think it's worth repeating. The parable goes like this. There were two fish swimming along, an older fish and a younger fish. And the older fish said to the younger fish, the water is fine. And the younger fish said to the older fish, what is water? Let me say the parable again. There were two fish swimming along, an older fish and a younger fish. And the older fish said to the younger fish, the water is fine. And the younger fish said to the older fish, what is water? Water is culture. Sometimes you have to be removed from your culture for an extended period of time to realize that you have a culture. You live in water. You have a culture. OGC has a culture. Our city has a culture. And there might be aspects of that culture that others find difficult or even offensive. It is good to be increasingly aware that every aspect of our own culture and all of the various cultures around us Ignorance of these things can hurt our fruitfulness. Let me circle back to my introductory story. What I didn't realize back in the fall of 2004, that I was actually quite ignorant to really important historical and cultural backstory to the place that I was trying to minister. All of the information was readily available. However, like a lot of things, I didn't know what I didn't know. You see, in post-World War II Italy, unlike Germany, there was no Marshall Plan to rebuild the country. In reaction to the far-right fascism um, of Mussolini, far-left communism arose, and the far-left and the far-right ended up having really bloody terrorism-filled battles in the streets of Italy. To this day, many of these crimes have, have yet to be solved. Tangentially related to this was the friendship of George W. Bush and then-Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi. Berlusconi is a very complicated and controversial man. 
And imagine an American who owned the equivalent of the Yankees, Publix, construction companies, Fox, Comcast, and who also made very embarrassing public gaffes, had wildly inappropriate relationships, and dominated the political scene for over 20 years, despite being largely unpopular by the uh, large swaths of the Italian population. That's Berlusconi. Berlusconi had a habit of rubber stamping uh, uh, George W. Bush's uh, U.S. foreign policy and had committed and deployed several thousand Italian troops to the war in Iraq. I didn't understand that the primary touch points that the U.S., that the Italians would have with the U.S. election was was the foreign policy of their authoritarian oligarch. Italian sentiment against the war in Iraq was very strong, and people um, did not like Berlusconi, despite him being a fixture in the Italian political scene. So, of the over 100 people who asked me um, Bush or Kerry during the fall of 2004, only one was excited about my answer. And I learned later that this person was the head of the university's fascist student group. Great. Our entire team saw zero people respond to the gospel until after the election cycle, after which we saw quite a few people profess faith. My historical and cultural ignorance cost me some huge unknown relational capital on something that mattered zero to the primary mission that I had on the campus of that university. The older I've gotten and the more that my relational networks have expanded the more I've come to realize that I have repeated this same kind of mistake many times over. Some of these things pertains to how I view mercy ministry, navigated ethnic differences, my understanding of power dynamics and social structures, and how I relate to persons who have experienced trauma. Culture, language, and history matter. Like in my story, we can unnecessarily alienate people without even knowing it. I think that most of us here fall into one of two categories of understanding with respect to how we know and process Orlando. For those of us who have been here for a long time, our understanding of the city is usually frozen in the time frame when we first came. And sometimes we have trouble keeping up with ongoing developments. For those of us who are newer to the city, we're more aware, probably, of who the city is today but perhaps we're often unaware of some of the historical developments that led to how we got to where we are today. In order for us to be more effective here as a local church, we need to be increasingly understanding our city both as it exists today and how we got here historically. Church, especially those of you who have been here more than a year and before Jim's tenure here, we need to have an honest and hard conversation because we have a problem. Here's the problem. We've only had one person baptized here in the last three and a half years. I find this to be a personal source of shame and my greatest pastoral failure during my tenure here. It means that I have failed to pastor you well. While our city might be increasingly post-Christian, it isn't that post-Christian. And if Juddie's church of 30 folks in Italy can see seven people baptized and 10 people respond to the gospel this year alone, the hostility of your culture, it just isn't an excuse. 
we need to be honest with ourselves and admit that we have a problem in how we understand our city, how we relate to people, and how we communicate our story. We need to prayerfully ask God to illuminate these things to us to help us grow relationally and seek healthier rhythms of gathering and being sent back out. I don't think I'm saying really anything controversial here. In our missional survey that we took last week, the number one weakness that we all identified both individually and corporately was our mission to the city. Not far behind that, number two, was ministries of mercy and justice. So we all know and understand that this is an area for us to prayerfully seek sanctification and growth. As leaders, we have thought a lot about how we can better equip you all to do the work of the ministry to the city. We firmly believe that God has thousands more people here who have, yet just, who have just yet to see and hear the good news. This is why we did the missional survey this past week. We have it in our strategic plan, in our three to five year goals, that we would have less unnecessary cultural distance between us and the city and that we would grow in our understanding of the needs of our city. For months now, Jim and I have been writing a series of roughly 10 blog posts on key developments in the history of our city. Also, we've been planning, scheduling, and producing an Orlando-specific podcast season interviewing key ministry leaders in the city. The blog posts will hopefully flesh out some of the key storylines and dynamics that you may not have been previously aware of from the history of our city, and the podcast will hopefully illuminate more of who our city is today, what are its needs, and what are the challenges for us taking the gospel in word and deed to our city. So here's my first application point. When we start publishing these blog posts and podcast episodes in a few months, if you would, read them listen to them, and if they're compelling, share them. Excellent contextualization involves actually understanding the nuances and complexities from everything as high altitude and broad as the city as a whole, all the way down to the nuances and complexities of the story of a single human being. Contextualization involves us becoming better educated and we hope that through some of our writing and podcasting to reintroduce you to our city in the months to come. All that being said, you could be really educated on who our city is today and still be really ineffective. Remember our big idea. If we want to be more fruitful as a local church, we need to learn our city, relate better, and tell a better story. This brings us to our second point. We need to relate better with people. Let's look back at the text from verses 17 to 21. So he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, we May we know what this new teaching that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. All right. Paul had three scenes in our text. The synagogue, then the marketplace, then the Areopagus. 
The first scene had a primarily Jewish audience. In the second and third scenes, the marketplace and the Areopagus was an audience of primarily intellectual Greek men. For those in the synagogue, he did the same thing that he did with others in other cities, reasoned with them. However, when he got to the marketplace, he made the appropriate observations to the cultural and philosophical differences of his audience and adjusted his gospel message accordingly. You see in the text that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers are listening and conversing with him. Even though it didn't seem they understood what he was saying, he was relating them in, with a way that was charitable enough for them to want to whisk him off to the Areopagus, which was a hub for these kinds of conversations. We see in the text that Paul was troubled. Paul had a concern and compassion for these folks because he saw how their idols were lying to them. Relating better means we need to be empathetic to the wins and losses, ups and downs of other human beings. I think that our current, in our current cultural moment, much of this boils down to cultivating intimate and vulnerable relationships with other people. Church, ministry to people is gardening and not a factory assembly line. Ministry is gardening and not a factory assembly line. I'm so weary and tired of approaches to ministry that just treat people like brains that just need the right facts dumped into them. Does the gospel involve truths uh, about God that are utterly essential? Yes. But we are more, far more complicated creatures. We emote. We have stories. We have pain. We have trauma. We have joy. We have wants. We have fears. Ministry is gardening. I'm so weary of the modality of people gaining just enough relationship or employing bait-and-switch tactics with people to ram your non-Christian acquaintance uh, down the assembly line of more accurate information just about Jesus. He is a person. The assembly line approach had its time back when Big Ten Crusades, booklets, door-to-door stuff, street preaching actually influenced some people. These times are gone, especially in post-Christian cities like Orlando. You are gardeners. You reap in a different season than when you sow. You sow not knowing if there will be a harvest, but you tend to what you have sown as if it will bear fruit. Why? Because you know that the Lord of the harvest is good and in complete control. I can guarantee you this, though. If you do not sow, and if you do not tend to what you have sown, then you will not reap. It wouldn't be a Mike Graham sermon here if I didn't have some kind of custom-made graph or Venn diagram. So you can check that off my sermon bingo card. This first graph here outlines a theory that I have. When you have people who are either very close to you culturally or people who are very culturally distant from you, those people are actually easier to minister to. However, when you are both a part of the same culture and familiar with all the same socially accepted norms, behaviors, mores, and taboos, but you have different worldviews, beliefs, habits, or value systems, then the difficulty to minister becomes much higher. When I was in East Asia, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, or Central America, nobody knew that it was taboo in America to talk about faith and Jesus in America. So we could get away with cutting to the chase far faster than in my own country and in my own culture. 
When I went back over the years and analyzed a decade's worth of people being baptized here, what I noticed was the following trend. Pretty much everyone who responded to the gospel could be plotted at one of two points on the graph. The first X is primarily people being baptized who have been members of your households. And the second X is primarily people who are very culturally distant, folks like international students or people who were on the margins of society. I praise Jesus that we see children of believers respond and follow in that faith legacy and when we see other fruit in the city. But let me unpack this phenomenon a bit. The lion's share of people in our city actually exist at the top of the curve. Most of our residents reside in that green area. These people are your next door neighbors, the people who you see at the gym every week, your coworker, that person or two that God just keeps putting right in front of you. I'm very pleased that we have grown significantly this year as a church body, but the lion's share of that growth has come from either new folks moving to the city or folks who are just kind of curious about what's going on here. That growth is not coming from people in the green area responding to the gospel and becoming lifelong followers of Jesus. Our heart cry is that we would become more fruitful in ministering to people in this green area and that we would in turn be more effective in equipping you all to do as well. We don't have all the answers, but we should commit to asking ourselves some hard questions. Here are some hard questions that I want us to ask ourselves. First, how do we need to grow as a church body? How do we need to change? Are there things that we need to repent of? How do we become more self-aware? How do we become more others-aware? What unnecessary roadblocks are we putting up for people? Like my initial story from my ministry failure in Italy, I'm confident that I'm doing the equivalent of telling people bush in other areas of my life. But I'm just not self-aware and others-aware enough to know it yet. I want to introduce you to another idea. This room right here, the one that we're in right now, this room is a reflection of who all is eating at your dinner table. I'm using the term dinner table here loosely. And what I mean by it is the sum total of people with whom you're breaking bread or the people who you have in your home or the people that you're constantly and consistently um, otherwise deeply relationally connected. Here's what I'm saying. If there are people that we want to be worshiping here with us, then they're going to need to be at your dinner table first. If you want to see your neighbors here, your coworkers here, your gym acquaintance here, or the person that keeps, God keeps putting right in front of you here, then they need to be at your dinner table. If you desire this church to look more like our city in any way, it's going to have to happen at your dinner table first. As you relate to people who are a little different than you at the top of the curve, then it's going to involve people who share very different thoughts, experiences, storylines from you. And that means you're going to have to do a lot of listening. What if one of the best ways to garden was actually to be a vulnerable and great listener? If you spend time with people, 
because you're genuinely interested in them as another image-bearing human being, and you genuinely seek to connect, understand, and empathize, opportunities will often arise. We aren't a thinking culture or society anymore. We are a society that operates from the heart. You can bemoan that all you want, but you are powerless to change it. So we need on some levels to all adapt to that reality. Are you someone that other people find safe? Do people readily trust you with confidential, painful, or traumatic parts of their story? These are mission-critical aspects of us being fruitful today. In zero way am I ever asking any of us to compromise on any aspect of the high cost of discipleship and the actual offense of the gospel. However, what I am saying is the medium is the message. In other words, how you communicate deeply impacts what you are communicating. Let me illustrate this. Any married person understands They've had this conversation. Honey, it isn't what you said, but it's how you said it. The medium is the message. Can we be honest about Reformed Baptist types for a moment? We aren't exactly known as being the most warm and fuzzy people. And that's probably hurting our ability to be fruitful here. I need to grow in this area, and you probably need to as well. Given enough time, the people around your dinner table will eventually be the people who you're standing side by side with here, singing the gospel together here in this room. I want you to take a look at this map with me. This is an ethnic breakdown of every single person in Orlando. Based on the 2018 Census Bureau statistics, if we are considering Orlando to be orange and Seminole counties combined, Orlando is 47% white, 19% black, 30% Hispanic, and 4% Asian. Orlando, in other words, is minority white. Yet Orlando, while being diverse, is still a largely segregated city. There are complex and sad reasons for why some of these things are the case, and Jim and I will be unpacking some of those things in our forthcoming blog series. Let me speak primarily to the white folks in the room for a moment. I hope on some meaningful level that we don't want to minister to only 47% of our city. If you feel that way, I would encourage you to think about God's global plan, all the way from the covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis 12, all the way to Revelation 5 and 7, where every tongue, tribe, people, and nation are worshiping together around the throne. On the one hand, I was encouraged from our missional survey that nearly 80% of you wanted to see a more accurate depiction of our city in this room. On the other hand, I kind of wish it was more like 100%. We have corporately and individually already identified that our biggest weakness was our mission to the city. Well, this is who our city is. By, by population, our city is primarily non-white. Can we all commit to asking God to give us the same heart for Orlando that he has for Orlando. That's all we're asking for here. If we want the other 53% of the city to be here, then there are probably a lot of things that we have to humbly admit that we just don't know. We'll have to humbly understand there are cultural preferences that make it difficult sometimes for some of those 53% of the other city to choose to worship with us here and now. 
One of the things that was really powerful to me at a recent conference that I attended was a sermon delivered by a Presbyterian pastor in Cape Town, South Africa. He remarked that he hoped that his kids would be able to see a church that reflected their whole country within their lifetimes. But one of the challenges of ministering in Cape Town was that, quote, apartheid has had a 400-year head start on our local church. Apartheid has had a 400-year head start on our local church. Like this pastor in Cape Town, our city has had its own unique history, and this has had a long head start on our local church. Those are hard realities. We need to minister inside of that and understand these things. Has your dinner table even remotely reflected the city that we live in today? I know mine hasn't. I've had numerous personal cringeworthy moments looking in the mirror while writing this sermon myself. If the sermon is stepping on your toes a little bit, realize that I'm preaching it first and foremost to myself in hopes that I can change and become a better discipler and a better leader. Part of preaching through these kind of core values is that we are preaching these things to ourselves first. Myself, Jim, our elders, we're disciples and church members before we are pastors and elders. Look, I understand that many of you are insanely busy, and many of you have zero surplus time and little or even negative financial resources. I'm genuinely empathetic to that. The Christian life, however, is a marathon, and some seasons are really challenging and intense. Our capacity will ebb and flow. That being said, my aim here is this, that we wouldn't necessarily be adding anything to your calendars and weekly rhythms, but rather that we would be intentionally and naturally bringing other people alongside of us in doing the things that we are already naturally doing. We do this in a way that doesn't treat people as projects, but we do that out of our genuine affection for them and with an appropriate measure of relational vulnerability on our part. I don't know what your dinner table is. For me and my family, our dinner table are our walks and runs in our neighborhood, our soccer friends, and all the people who are connected to our kids. I'm not trying to blow up anyone's calendar. I'm merely asking for all of us to be more intentional in all the rhythms and life and habits of life that you already have. I want you to do an audit of your time and see what it is that you naturally do and then just add empathetic gospel intentionality inside of all those regular rhythms. Eating, playing, playdates, studying, working out, running, pets, hobbies, whatever. Seriously, just look, what you already, look at what you already do, open your eyes, see who, who's already doing all of those things that God's putting right in front of you, and be a normal human being that expresses genuine interest in those people. I don't care whether the vehicle is your physical dinner table or some other rhythm, but we all need more real, empathy-filled, and vulnerable relationships. Remember the big idea. If we want to become more fruitful as a local church, we need to learn our city, relate better, and tell a better story. It isn't enough for us to just know our context and relate better with greater empathy and vulnerability. We also need to learn how to tell a better story. Let's look back at the text in verses 22 to 34. 
So Paul, standing in the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For, in quote, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. And among them were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Okay. Paul set a good example for us here in the text in verses 22 to 34. Those at the second scene of the marketplace take him emphatically to the Areopagus because they were really curious about what Paul was saying. The Areopagus was kind of like a governmental entity that exercised jurisdiction over ethical and religious matters. Some have speculated there's a sense in which Paul is being detained or interrogated here, but the location was similar to our Supreme Court. It had a direct view of the Acropolis, where the famous Parthenon is located, and at the Areopagus, most likely Paul is being brought before a council of city officials who are curious to evaluate his foreign ideas, particularly of those pertaining to the resurrection. Paul uses their groping after God to create common ground in his message. He employs their ignorance of an idol to an unknown God to create knowledge. Paul then emphasizes how much greater God is than the little gods that require humans to make them physically and to create them. Rather, the God that Paul proclaims is the creator and we are the creature, not the other way around like all the idols that he found throughout the city. The creator God remains active and has sovereignly controlled, provisioned the national boundaries and, the, and, the, and what peoples are dominant and which ones are not. Paul expresses that God can be found and he is close to us. We need not grope around blindly anymore. Paul then quotes two of their own pagan poets to borrow some of their categories of how they understood Zeus and he instead reapplies them to a new understanding of how we are humans made in the image of our divine creator God. Paul also uses common critiques found elsewhere in scripture of the ridiculousness of worshiping inanimate idols. Now, in verse 30, Paul turns the corner to his application. Paul charges his audience with ignorance, a bold move for people who just made fun of his intelligence. However, remember, he opened his speech referring to their own idol as an unknown God. 
he makes clear that God is very actively engaged in making them a part of his plan for his global kingdom and that Paul is proclaiming the merits of this God. Paul preaches that those present need to repent of their ignorance and idols in view of the judgment of God and the reality of the resurrection. So, at the Areopagus, we see three responses. First, mocking. Second, people who kept an open mind. Third, belief. Some mocked and sneered at the idea of the resurrection of the dead. Others decided to keep an open mind. And third, some men and, some, and at least one woman joined and believed him. Paul understood his audience. He employed a wide variety of things that he learned from their culture. Not everyone that we minister to is going to respond positively, but some are going to keep an open mind and some are going to respond to the gospel. Let me ask you this question. What is Orlando's Areopagus? What's our Areopagus? We don't have a central place where the whole city gets together and do nothing but share ideas all the time. But we do kind of have a little bit of a cultural equivalent. You know what it is? It's Walt Disney World. Consider for a moment the defining aspect of some of these different cities. For Rome, the defining aspect was power. For Jerusalem, tradition. For Athens, knowledge. In Orlando, it's stories. Now, it happens to be that some of those stories manifest themselves in family-centric theme parks and movies, but none of us are sitting in this room, in this actual room. It doesn't even exist were it not for Walt Disney. You have to ask yourself, why did 75 million people come and visit Orlando last year? We are the number one tourist destination in the world. Why? The answer is supremely simple. Walt Disney was great at telling stories. We have a four-chapter gospel, a four-chapter story. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Creation, God made everything and it was good, including making humanity in his image, giving us tremendous dignity. Chapter two, the fall. Man disobeyed God's rules and everything in existence became cursed. Chapter three, redemption. God sent his son Jesus, fully God and fully man, to obey all God's rules and through his death and resurrection to trade his perfect obedience for all of the disobedience of his people, starting a process to roll back the curse. Chapter four, consummation. Jesus returns and makes every single aspect of creation new, where in that new creation, there's nothing but truth and goodness and justice and beauty and peace everywhere. In the 20th century, the gospel focus among evangelicals was almost primarily only on chapters 2 and 3. And there's a certain logic to that. Chapter 2 is the problem, chapter 3 is the solution. This played really well into an American, pragmatic, linear, and solutions-oriented culture, particularly for the greatest generation and boomers. Billy Graham, Big Ten Evangelism, Church Growth Movement, Attractional Church, all of this more or less is working from that chapter 2 and chapter 3 only playbook. The problem is that while it's true, it's only a partial gospel, right? 
and a gospel that many in the 21st century don't connect with anymore. Imagine for a moment you're interacting with your friend or coworker who's an environmentalist or activist or maybe a democratic socialist. They perhaps speak often and care deeply about global warming, economic inequality, and justice for the powerless and disenfranchised. Well, okay. If I have a four-chapter gospel, I can actually work with that. If I set aside whatever policy differences that we might have in that moment, what that friend is longing for is actually Jesus' consummated kingdom. In many ways, the desires that they have for stewardship, justice, and equality are all good desires, and, and they resonate with certain aspects of the very end of our gospel story. These longings come from a world that Jesus is recreating in his second coming. In other words, they want chapter 4 during the era of chapter 3. If you only have a two-chapter gospel, then you don't have categories with which to connect to this person and help channel their utopian ideals into Jesus' future government. Jesus loves creation deeply, and in his kingdom, there will be no want and no injustice. Great. I just found you common ground in some new ways. There are hundreds, hundreds of ways that we can do this because the gospel is such a multifaceted diamond that, refra- that refracts so many different themes off of it. Those themes speak to many different cultures and people and individual stories. I can guarantee if you begin to think about the gospel as a four-chapter story instead of just a two-story one, you will find dozens of new ways with which to connect with people, especially other people who you might view as very, very culturally distant from you. People worship stories. Stories tell you about the world. They tell you about yourself. They give you a framework for the wins and losses of life. They help you process your wants and your fears. We must get better at telling stories here. I challenge you to go back to the Gospels and Acts and study Jesus' and the apostles' interactions with people. Jesus wasn't always just sitting and waiting for a pause in the dialogue that he could just back up the gospel dump truck and unload on someone. The man was a genius of parable, of story, of good and incisive questions. I don't know many apologetics geeks today that, spend, that see many people responding to the gospel. We aren't a thinking culture. We're a feeling and experience-based culture. People are less concerned with whether Christianity is true. They're far more concerned with whether Christianity works and whether it's good for the world. So how do we tell a story that's better? We do it in two ways, word and deed. By becoming better stories verbally and by demonstrating the gospel physically, by valuing, mirroring, and imaging the matters of mercy and justice that God has revealed to us in his book. One of the really nice things about the widening gap between Christians and the broader culture is that the reality of who serious kingdom-minded Christians are and who society perceives them to be are actually reaching caricature or parody levels. The net effect of that is that it lowers the bar of what it takes to surprise other people. If everybody just assumes that you're going to be a racist homophobe, but then you wow them by treating them as uh, dignity, as, as having tremendous dignity as fellow image bearers, well, you've just created curiosity out of thin air. It is in this way that I believe that actually ministry is actually getting easier right now in some respects as we become increasingly post-Christian. 
Take advantage of that. Remember our big idea. If we want to become more fruitful as a local church, we need to learn our city, relate better, and tell a better story. The ultimate example of this is Jesus. He left an eternity of perfect community in the triune Godhead to forever take on human flesh. He had to learn humanity, culture, and a bunch of different cities. He dealt with people with tremendous grace, truth, compassion, mercy, empathy, and understanding. He told the best story in the world because it's a true story. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Let the truth, goodness, and beauty of that future consummated kingdom drive us to communicate the gospel with greater sensitivity and urgency in our city. By helping to make the offense of the gospel more comprehensible, contextualizing our mission properly will help us become more fruitful. Excellent contextualization means that the only hurdles that people should have to becoming a Christian is the actual offense of the gospel. Woe unto us for adding any additional hurdle or for taking any hard aspect of the gospel itself away. I think I would rather quit my job here before we went another three and a half years before doing a baptism here. I do not accept that as normal. I do not accept that as healthy. I will continue to pray, repent, learn, and beg God to move. God has more sheep in our city. Mature people bear fruit. I need more maturity. I pray that that would be true for us. I don't care whether the, the vehicle is your physical dinner table or some other rhythm, but we all need more real, empathy-filled, and vulnerable relationships. I'm about to close this sermon in prayer, but during our, our time of uh, response and reflection, I want you to think about um, these three questions. I'm going to read them for us. I'm going to leave them up during our silent response time. And I want you to just to consider those um, as our act of worship as we respond um, here to the sermon. So let me read these, and then I'll pray for us. Question one, who does God keep putting in front of me where both of us really seem to connect? Two, how can we naturally spend more time together? Three, how do I need to grow in understanding our city, relating to others, and telling a better story? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, please give us your heart for the city. We ask that you would make your will for our church a reality here in the city. We ask that you would make our stated values a reality. We ask that you would show us ways that we can become a more fruitful people. Show us our weaknesses. Reveal our blind spots. Change our affections. Mold us and make us more into the image and likeness of your Son, Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.